What does the ideal head of distribution look like? I, I guess it's because Angus and I talk about this a lot, we, we meet a lot, and, and we've been around a lot. And it seems to us like, you know, when we started City Wire, you know, distribution was quite a lot about, you know, playing golf, putting your arm around the shoulder, you know, meals and whatever. But there was also another type of distribution person that was perhaps more, more kind of spreadsheet oriented and, and mathematical and more, more data driven. They're almost two opposites. And now when we do, our, we do a distribution event in uh, Berlin, we have a real sense that, that you know, it's shifted more towards the data and the science and efficiency and less towards the whining and dining. So I'd be really interested to have your perspectives on what an ideal head of distribution. Maybe we'll start with you, Nick, because you, know, you, 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 you have been in distribution roles. Indeed. Um, well, I think it's a bit of a combination. I don't think it's all the way over on the sort of the, the data side of things. Um, you know, from my perspective, when I'm thinking about the ideal head of distribution, I'm looking at somebody who is clearly understanding of the client, so has that innate client uh, interest. Um, is somebody who isn't going to be thinking about the client in terms of a product push, but much more in terms of how to develop a relationship and a partnership. That takes you a little bit towards the whining and dining, but I think that is well and truly over and done with in our industry. So it's not about the whining and dining, it's about understanding how to develop an understanding of the client uh, and turn that into a sort of consultative process and partnership. Then supported very much now by an understanding of how technology can help, how you can use data to enhance the client experience and the sales experience. And so it's a combination uh, of all of those things I think that I'm looking for now. Uh, and I think would be the, the sort of archetypal modern day head of distribution. Would any, thank you, Nick. Would anyone like to add to that? I'd say it's morphed from what was actually a head of sales. And I think head of distribution is massively different to head of sales. I think in addition to what Nick said, you've got to be able to integrate sales with client service, with marketing, with product. You've got to work well to integrate with the investment team. Um, and make sure that their understanding of everything that the client needs. And then I think you've got to have a view of strategy. I think typically one of the facets of sales was that it was relatively near-term sales cycle focused, whereas I think distribution ultimately has to have a view of what, what do we think we're going to do to move the business in the next six to 12 months, but you've got to have a sense of the next three to five years now. Alexandra, you're nodding. Um, that's exactly what I was going to say. He said it all. Uh, Joe, what about from the American experience? So I think... Um, Distribution is not is much more than sales. It's an ecosystem, right? It involves product, it involves analytics, it involves marketing, and and somebody who understands that and can bring all of that together um, is obviously critical. I think of um, uh, the 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 most important thing I think about for a head of distribution is a passion for clients. And as Nick said earlier about the 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 curiosity and the drive to really understand clients deeply. That it starts there. Um, I do think, though, that the sales piece is hard, right? Sales is hard, and people forget how hard sales is. So a great head of distribution is able to interact and, and empathize, but challenge and hold accountable the sales teams because it is, it's is—it's a very hard part of the business. Um, and so they've got to be able to have a nice blend of IQ, analytics, data, and EQ, knowing how to work with salespeople because it's a, sales is a tough job. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll add, I mean, client centricity, I think. All the, yeah, like, we know everything that. everybody yeah, has yeah, said. Yeah. I, I would just add a few other uh, anecdotes. One is understanding the channel that you're, and, and the 
client type you're talking to and being agile with respect to how do you think about that. And what I mean by that is, is that um, the smaller number of clients with bigger assets is probably more sales driven than marketing driven. As you go further out towards registered investment advisors in the US, IFAs here in the UK, and it starts to get more fragmented and there's more firms, marketing becomes more important because you can't do sales coverage as easily. And so th what, what that results, I think then, is that the distribution folks have to be exceptional at cross-functional collaboration. Mm. So that no more is there a marketing department and a sales department and a product and you know the investment folks. It's how do we create a cross-functional group that's thinking about getting together to try and serve the client. And at least for us, we've said the head of distribution is the one who kind of has to corral all of those resources to you know, get them ready to more, serve the client More well. senior, is your head of distribution more senior than your head of marketing? No, Sa same, same, uh, but it's just a matter of who's going to actually sit down and, and kind of coordinate. Think about team teams. It's like a Stanley McChrystal thing, if you've ever read Stanley McChrystal, who was a former general, and he wrote a book called Team of Teams. It's how do you create team of teams? And, yeah. and, and so we think about who are the team of teams, but the team has to have somebody who's going to, you know, at least kind of run the meeting, so to speak, and our head of distribution runs our team of teams meetings. Uh, uh, just, just to make a couple of observations, and, and Angus, by all means, you know, jump in here. Um, I think it's fair to say in, in the time that we've been, you know, running CityWire, we have come across situations where basically distribution and marketing don't respect each other. Mm. And I wonder whether you've come across that and how you handle that. Yeah, and that's not just a thing of the past. We've, that's yeah. something we still hear yeah. even currently. Yeah, marketing are feeding leads and distribution say, well, these leads, we know the people, or whatever the reason is, but there's, mm. there's a bit of dysfunction. And, and perhaps, you know, the context, you know, it's been a tough period. And you were saying, you know, when things, it's all right when things are good, but when things are tough, you have to make sure that people are working well together because you often you'll get that kind of level of dysfunction happening. So I just wonder, that, that kind of relationship between distribution and marketing, have you come across it being problematic? Well, I think the ideal head of distribution is someone that um, is able to really intimately understand the end-to-end -end client needs. And the problem is those end-to-end -end client needs are changing really quite fundamentally. I think it's interesting that many of us probably have what we call you know, salespeople within inside our businesses, which actually to me implies that we have an ability to really overtly influence or to push product onto our clients. Actually, I think increasingly it's not so much about that, it's about a buying process. And we're here trying to facilitate a buying process. We're trying to help clients you know, shape their thinking, understand what it is that's relevant and important to them. And we try to provide them with data, analytics, understanding of what it is we do and how it is we do it to help them make those buying decisions. And those buying decisions are even more complicated than they ever used to be. And so actually I think for distribution to work really well, it is about, and look, asset management is generally a team-based sport. Distribution is undoubtedly a team-based sport. It is how that end-to-end -end relationship works, right from identifying a customer or a customer coming to us and asking, you know, suggesting, ask, you know, you know, prompting us to, to help them you know, find their solution, right through to how you onboard them, um, devise products for them, um, service them and report to them. And therefore, your ideal head of distribution today has to be someone that is seamless in their ability to navigate that entire end-to-end -end customer process. Whereas in the past, I think distribution heads were much more focused on you know, simply attaining clients. It's now about how you manage those relationships and develop those relationships. So if I could just jump in and add one more element that I don't think we've really oh. mentioned with all the things that we've mentioned, and I think your answer was probably really comprehensive. Um, 
The head of distribution also needs to make sure that we get the market feedback loops into the organization. So all of us have talked about how we face out yeah. into the market, but I think it's equally important in terms of understanding what clients want and need. The head of distribution needs to feed that back into the teams and into the rest of the business. That, that's a critical part of their role. Feedback that is coming to him or her or other yeah. re external research, a mixture of the two? All of it. What of they it. see, what they hear, how appetites are changing, yeah. what the sensitivities are, what clients might be pivoting towards, client challenges, marketplace, uh, you know, uh, structural changes. That's, that's really important information mm. that's got to be fed back. And, and I think a, a, an integral part of the head of distribution's role is to do precisely that. Yeah, I, I certainly see within our organization the head of distribution as sort of the, the internal client champion. Yeah. So yeah. It, uh, it is yeah. both thinking about, yeah. one, how do we support the, the, the client going out, but exactly as Alexander says, it's about representing the client interest and the client need back into the organization because that isn't, yes. it's not always the case that every element of the organization is aligned to the client agenda. And that's where I think that yeah. will. But should we come back to... Sorry, I broke your train of thought. That's okay. It was just the, the mm. dysfunctional relationships between sales and marketing. You know, mm. Have you come across them? How do you deal with them? It's interesting. The first iteration of your question said between distribution and marketing, and then you changed between sales, sales and marketing. And oh, yeah. Oh, so which one did you mean? <laughs> yes, but you know, well, it's an interesting question because, you know, I often think, I think I think distribution, uh, a big chunk of distribution is sales. I would say as big, and I would say Sean's absolutely spot on in his analogy as you go across the different distribution channels as big, and particularly you mentioned earlier data, yeah. the use and integration of data into our analytics, our voice of client, all of that, a lot more of that comes from marketing than it does from sales. Yeah, um, but then the question is, does, does distribution respect it? But that's what no, has to be an does sales respect it? Ah, does sales respect Distribution it? is, in my mind, I don't know oh, if we're aligned to this guy. It's like right. picking it's on the <laughs> No, but it's yeah. an important yeah. thing. It's an you asked yeah. by saying yeah. what's head of yes. distribution. Distribution is not sales. Distribution, I think, for all of us, is an umbrella. Do you all agree distribution is not sales? Not just sales. Sales is the tip of the spear. Yeah. And it's a key part of distribution, but it's not all of distribution. Did it used to be, in the old days, did it used was distribution really another name for sales in the past? Maybe. Sales yeah. dominated it culture. It, it, it doesn't matter it, it now. It doesn't matter. What is yeah. it now? And that's yeah. how I think most people think of it. I think I'd then in your question pick up, is it, you called it dysfunction. I wonder whether it's creative tension. And I think in any team you need uh, neural diversity. You need dysfunction. There will be times when marketing will have a perspective from voice of client, from research, from data and analytics that doesn't match up with a very, very, you know, person to person, B to B nature of what people are seeing in the marketplace. It doesn't mean that either opinion is right or wrong, and you get better outcomes, I think, by having both opinions rather than one simply trumping the other. The, so the other thing that's fundamentally changed in recent years is the role that product plays, however. And you know, especially here in the UK, with the FCA's focus on product and product governance, the importance of designing products appropriately with understanding what your target market is and what your target market isn't. You know, the, the governance that's required to oversight and to observe value for money on an annual basis, the suitability of products on an ongoing basis, that becomes a very integral part, therefore, of your wider distribution ecosystem and mm. how you then link in what your clients are telling you that they want, how it is that you are then you know, designing what it is that you do and how you then you know, sell that, push that, you know, discuss that, um, engage with clients on that is in a crucial additional part of distribution that is so much more weighted today than it was two or three years ago. Two or three years ago, there's that much change.
but I want to talk about engagement, as engagement as in ESG engagement. So very different definitions. So we looked it up for all of you, and so far as we could find, Columbia Threadneedle last year, 940. Joe Hambro, 140. You say quality counts, not quantity. Uh, Tiro, 788. Vanguard, as far as we could see, 801 in the half year. But there was another 1033 engagements, which we couldn't quite work out whether they were included or not. Allspring, we couldn't really see. I mean, the number was so low, I'm almost embarrassed to mention it because I don't know whether this could be correct. I don't think it is. It's 16. And Jupiter, I couldn't find a number. And I wonder whether that was deliberate. So wh wh how do you, when, when you talk about we've had this number of engagements, I mean, come on, you know, we're, everybody says the problem with ESG is lack of definition, but there's no common definition, it seems to me, among asset management groups as to what counts as engagement. The question is how then, in, in, in a couple of sentences, how, can you, how do you define engagement? Yeah, how do you define So we, we define engagement in terms of any engagement around either the management of ESG risk from a uh, research or portfolio perspective and or any engagement relating to positive impact. And that engagement could be via face-to-face, via um, you know, or sort of you know, any kind of Teams type, type of connection, and any engagement where we are not the only asset manager in the room. So sometimes some engagement yes. is, involves more than just us in yes. terms of working on a particular that's interesting. Yeah. So that's broad, that, yes. that would be because ninety-one wouldn't call it engagement unless they were the only people in the room. Yes. yes. So that's why I made that. Yeah. Good yeah. point, Alexandra. How do you define engagement? Yeah. Interesting. Quality counts. Quality that's counts. You You're absolutely right. So we have you know a hundred and. 40 yeah, engagements, um, and all of them would be done face-to-face. -face. All of them would be done on multiple times with the same management team because we try and track the result or the effect of that engagement over time. It certainly starts with you know, risk taken into account, but, but it goes into um, you know, things that, that might be part of the strategic intent. Um, of the investment approach. So where you know we have a water and waste strategy where we're looking at certain sustainable development goals, we'll engage with management around those goals. So they always have to be an engagement with management and they always have to be face-to-face -to -face for them to count as an engagement. So we also do multiple um, yeah. stakeholder engagements and we're very often one of the stakeholders or shareholders actually bringing people together yeah. um, would count that as an engagement, yes, but usually it would be face-to-face -face or um, you know, virtually on teams. Yeah. Robert, a meaningful interaction between a portfolio manager and or analyst and company manager. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So what's well, the obviously we have a definitional problem. Yeah. <laughs> at I, spring, so I, I need to figure out what that is. Um, I would sort of echo uh, Robert's point. I mean, we're engaging with our, uh, our portfolio clients all the time. Uh, now, how we would define that relative to ESG, I, I don't know off the top of my head, so I don't want to speculate on it. Sean, what about yeah, you? our engagements are direct meetings with board or um, executives. So it has to be a direct meeting to count. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And I would also say we look at percentage of AUM covered is one of the things that's important for us. So how much AUM do we have in a fund and how much, how much the engagements cover that? So large companies kind of count more towards because they count more <coughs> towards the AUM of the client's assets. If, does that make sense to you? Yeah. But isn't the outcome so much more important here? It isn't, isn't, or, or oh, yes. It's yes. about the efficacy of what it is that we're trying to do to get to what purpose. And yes. also, if, if we're engaging with a company, 
is because we'll all think there's something not quite as we think it should be or as you want it to be. And sometimes that is you know, a, a, a change that you're trying to drive because it's particularly pertained to the things that you are focused on. And sometimes it, are, it, it does represent things that the wider investment community are more focused on. And certainly I, I would observe that actually some of the most powerful and effective engagements that we've been involved in are in collective forums when you're trying to bring you know, significant weight to bear you know, on, a, on a management team that is, for whatever reason, not being particularly receptive to the idea of change. And actually, with frankly ganging up with other investors mm -hmm. and using the weight of your aggregate shareholding, that typically is the much m most effective way of getting, uh, of getting change, which is ultimately why we're engaging in the first place. But, but sometimes it requires one firm to, to lead, lead mm -hmm. that engagement in order to corral the other shareholders. That's been our experience. I think here in the UK, we've been blessed with the Investor Forum. I think it's, 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 it's a wonderful body that is very um, particular in choosing where to engage, mm -hmm. and it brings a lot of investment managers together. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, for one, would love to see a similar type structure exist in other geographies mm -hmm. that we could utilize it more probably effectively. Probably does in the US, I would have thought there's something like that in the US. In the US, I think one thing that is a potential concern is that is that uh, colluding yeah. to, mm. uh, you know, influence a company and violating antitrust rules. Well, the, this was created after the financial crisis because the general message from both the Bank of England and from the regulators and government was that we were all active shareholders in these organizations mm. and yet bad behavior was, a, was, was existing. Yeah, and yeah, the question so. was, well, where were you all? And we said, well, A, concert party yeah. antitrust stuff prevented us, yeah. and B, even if we were overweight in some of the biggest banks, we held one or two percent of the stock. And, okay. you know, frankly, yeah. there was no, whereas, so this was created as a forum. Simon Fraser, I think, was the lead of it, sadly yeah. passed away last year, um, who, that ultimately led this to say, look, there must be a safe space where managers can get together, yeah. drive and create influence without yeah. And I think it. I think well, there's been a number right. of very notable successes. Yeah. You know, Tinto, Barclays, you know, the two that immediately spring to mind. Were you involved in them? Um, in one of those two, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I know numbers don't count, but do you do you actually know your numbers? Not top of my head. Okay. Can I just come back though to the point you made, Matt, about the outcome? Because it, 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 it seems to me a lot of the challenge here is communicating the the effectiveness of what's happening. And, it, and if it can't, if there's no standardization of the definitions, it's very, very hard to represent outcomes in any standardized way. So, I mean, is, I guess, is standardization of the terminology, is it, is it practical? Is it desirable? And um, I just wonder whether you feel it's getting better or worse in terms of being able to effectively communicate what, not, what you've done through engagement. I'm personally not sure that one size fits all. And I'm not sure that actually having a standard definition of what an engagement is would necessarily help in explaining how effective you know, one is. <coughs> I mean, ultimately, you know, clients are interested in the aggregate performance typically of a fund, which is a series of individual holdings, typically companies in the case of, you know, we're talking here about engaging with corporates to make a difference. And they, they therefore care about the returns that those individual securities are generating and the risk taken to generate those returns. And your involvement as an active manager, you know, that's one of the, the levers that you can pull the ability to try and persuade a management by doing something differently or instead or as well, they would actually create shareholder value. And so it is the outcome that ultimately matters. And whether you are nudging the chairman, engaging with the CEO, it, I, or working with others you know, who are potentially shareholders, ultimately you're trying to drive shareholder value creation on behalf of your clients. And therefore, how you define it at the front end, 
I think it would be lovely and convenient. I'm not sure it actually would add any value to the process. I think the, the, it's the extension, so it, it's, uh, I absolutely agree. That where, the, where the standardization might be helpful is in terms of defining the impact, as in the, the outcome. So if there was a yes. consistent sort of categorization, yeah. because obviously there's a whole That's load of different sets of circumstances that mm. will play out because you all, as a result of You will produce lovely engagement reports. But it's kind of different. Some of you name names and some of you don't. You're talking about the stewardship report, yeah. the UK stewardship. Yeah. So I yeah. think there is a certain threshold and a certain standard already, you know, in in place. Yeah. It may not be specific enough, but it is there, I mean, and I think that you know it is good. looked at. I think the standard's pretty good. Yeah. It doesn't tend to get that much publicity. Mm. But and it, some I'd signatories are not mm. accepted, so they're bumped out of the stewardship mm. code, and others mm. are accepted. And I think mm. certain thresholds and standards mm. are applied. So I do want to call that out. I think it's a great piece of work. I think it's, mm. you know, yeah, it, it's you great that it. we have that and that it's publicly available. Yeah, and that's what I'd point investors it. to. Yeah. I, I think the other fact yeah. that we've all got to respond to, whether we like it or not, to answer your question, Angus, is that we are being held to account more transparently by a range of yeah. stakeholders. Yeah. And some place where standardization <coughs> may help our case, whether we want to drive for it or not, is to then have a more consistent voice about how we do and don't exert our influence. I'd say that's a huge change. Again, maybe catalyzed by the financial crisis, but certainly compared to 10 years ago. You know, people want to know what is our proxy voting record on issues of not just ESG, but other issues. And, you know, if we all speak a different language, that means that we will not come across with a clarity of voice that I think, you know, belies the fact that we genuinely believe we feel very good, we do very good work in engagement. I, I agree with that, but I also I think there's just a little bit of a different tack, which is it, it, because I understand the desire to try and create some standards and then try and measure yeah. outcomes. You know, I think our experience, though, think about the way you would do this as an active manager. The idiosyncratic nature of these engagements are based on the idiosyncratic issues that that company faces, which are entirely unique. The competitive environment, the geographies they work in, the maturity of their product base, the yeah. economic impact or the ecological impact, very, very challenging to say, well, here's the outcomes that are standard. Not to mention the way the manager actually values those and weights those, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. This is, this is so it's really complex. challenging, which is why we focus a little bit more on case studies to try and articulate, here's the situation, here's how we engage, yeah. here's the outcome of that case the study. case studies are good. But they're very different from company to company, company, even in the same industry. So trying to standardize it, I worry that we're going to set ourselves up for failure because I'm not sure it's well, quite possible. It'll create an artificial and and, yeah, and yeah. potentially drive us towards a tick box. Yeah, also also you've all got to differentiate yourselves. The challenge is we will get pulled there. So if uh, we, we don't get I pulled do, there by owning disagree. the agenda, I suspect we'll get pulled there in a way that we don't own the agenda, and I think that will not do us favors. Uh, I just want to go off on a slight tangent. I, I don't know whether it'll work or not, but there's been quite a lot in the papers recently about the independence of boards. It's come up in the Scottish mortgage case. It's come up in an asset management case. Just and I just Corporate boards or fund boards? Well, it's more on the fund investment trust boards and, you know, the role of the non-execs. And I wonder whether you have a view on, because uh, my understanding is the FCA has now required, certainly unit trust, to have two in independent non-exec directors. I don't know whether that applies to OICs as well. It yes, it does. It does, okay. So, so what do you see the role, you know, in the past they just used to be the head of the unit trust group. What do you see the role of those non-execs on, on fund boards or investment trusts? I mean, I mean, you've got investment trusts, for example, and I think you've got investment trusts. A closed-end fund, sorry, Joe. 
What do you see the role of those non-execs? Because it's come, it's come up <coughs> recently, and I think it's a kind of interesting issue. Representing the interests of shareholders directly. And independently. Independent is the crucial word, isn't yeah. it? And through that independence, I think the added value is that sort of the, the distance that comes through that independence that creates a different approach towards the challenge exercise. So you end up with a better discussion and a better dialogue because you have people in the room who are not only just independent, that independence comes from the fact that they don't live in your business day in, day out, and therefore they have a different perspective. So from my perspective, when I'm looking at adding non-execs, I'm very keen to think about the added value that they'll bring because of their background, because of the experience that they have. So it isn't about ticking a box just to you know, keep the regulator happy or to feel that we're doing something from a governance perspective. It's to come up with a better and more diversified thought process that's hopefully going to lead to a better outcome. I think there's the an important intersection between what's going on with independent boards, fund boards, and the future of regulation in the UK. And that is that if you think about what's happened with the assessment of value and now the consumer duty, it's that the FCA, I think, is going to expect governance, and I think this is an important thing that I, I hope we go towards, is that governance is going to be the thing that tries to ensure that the funds are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and we rely more on principles and outcomes than we will rely on rules and process. Today, I think we have a little bit more reliance on rules and process from the regulator, and I think there's a movement afoot to say we want to move more to a principles and outcomes basis, and that the role of the governance of the firm is the important differentiating factor. Just relate that to the non-execs role. Though. Well, the non-execs are there to hold the management company to account to ensure that you're giving good value on your funds and that you are thinking about the outcomes that you want to drive through the consumer duty. And so if you have independent non-executive directors who are holding you to account and challenging management, that's a good thing towards getting to the outcomes that the regulator's hoping for. Look, it's not, it's not, it's, it's, as I say, it's not just implicit, it's explicit as well. It's explicit. Yeah, by having a board champion for consumer duty, for consumer duty. which is expected. Which will be a non-executive. Non it's got to be a non-executive. You have a non-executive who's there to represent the underlying client and ensure not that you, you're following appropriate good principles, but you're getting good outcomes. outcomes. So it's absolutely explicit in the regulation. So it's a really important role. Yes. And, and what you don't want them to do is to rush off to the FT if they're unhappy with the discussion, he says. <laughs> Mischievously. <laughs> but I was going to... Go on, no you come in and then I want to bring Joe in about what goes on in the States. I was just going to say, taking what um, Sean and Matthew said and then relating it back to what you were saying, Nick, does that then mean that bringing in the, the sort of the... You want that diversified view, so you're bringing in the old-style intelligent layperson. Is that harder to do because they will need more investment knowledge in this world that you're describing? Will, will in the future, will non-execs have to be people with some sort of investment savvy to do the job? I'm not sure if they'll necessarily need to have investment savvy, but they'll certainly need to understand the relationship between the client and the, the product provider and probably the whole value chain in between under the, the way in which uh, consumer duty is being constructed. But I don't think they have to have been a CIO or been a fund manager, but they do need to understand that relationship between the client and, and the provider. What's the situation in the States with mutual funds? Do they have to have independent boards, Joe? They do, and we do, and I think all the boards I've been associated with are completely independent. 
Um, and I, quite frankly, I find them to be good directors and, and uh, bringing not just independence, but also expertise, not necessarily in the fund business or in the investment business, but across business. And, and good directors in challenging us. Um, we, don't, we don't get off, left off, let off the hook easily by our directors, by our fund boards. Okay, um, I'm gonna move on. So uh, the, topic, the first topic was change. And when we spoke on the phone, you were saying change is very hard to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about you, Matthew, because you know, you've, you've, um, you're reducing your headcount by 15% and your funds by 25%. So how do you, you know, change is hard to achieve. Your business is currently in a state of transition. How do you affect change? I suspect you're all in a state of transition of some sort or other. You just, and, you know, have got to absorb BMO and et cetera. You've got a new parent and, you know, I won't go around the room. Anyway, so how do you deal with change? And particularly, in, you know, maybe giving difficult messages as well. Change is a constant feature of the world, let alone the investment management industry. I think we're naive to suspect that there's going to be some a wonderful nirvana in the future where there is no change because that's just not how it's going to be and we shouldn't want that either we should want constant evolution we should want best practice to be understood and to be employed and regulators of course are significant drivers of change and they are al always looking for opportunities to affect better client outcomes and things go wrong when things go wrong we want to learn from those um, you know, things that have <coughs> gone wrong and make sure they don't happen again so actually I think that a key trick is of course bringing your business along with you in an environment that is you're constantly evolving and changing. But I think for any one of us as leaders, let alone any member of our businesses, to expect that some steady state is a desired or likely outcome is frankly massively misguided. Yeah, I agree. So from my perspective, it's about embracing change. I mean, change is almost the definition of, of life. You know, things don't remain static. Yeah, so but some people don't like point. it. So I think there it's, it's exactly as Matt said, then you need to be able to clearly articulate the the catalyst for change what's causing us to have to respond mm. and then it's around that uh, that mindset which is accepting and supporting that and then the skill set the combination of those two is what will allow for but i think i think you met the key word change. you mentioned was catalyst because i think absent a catalyst and this is what i was referring to when we talked absent a catalyst self-change is really hard yeah. people don't often lose weight until they've had a heart attack you know and they need to go on a fitness regime or a diet or whatever it's hard to change if you don't have a catalyst in the case of allspring we had a major catalyst we had the acquisition by a private equity firm. And so we <coughs> were going to change whether we wanted to or not. And people certainly still resisted change. And those those who benefit most by the status quo fight the hardest to preserve it, right? So, you know, it's hard. But what, what we've tried to do is is help to all, people also see the opportunity in change, right? There's always opportunity. There's always winners and losers. And if you can figure out, okay, this change and what's happening or what we ought to be, how we ought to be changing and how that can actually benefit and not just benefit what I say, but look around the room at our employees and our clients and how can change benefit them? And if we can kind of mobilize people around that rather than just what I say, you know, try to convince them of my opinion, but try to understand so if I could just jump in, I think what's really important is articulating the desired end state, because that's how you bring people with you. And I think you need to be very clear on where you're going and why you're doing it. Can you make that specific? You can make that no, specific. No, can you make it specific? Like w some change you wanted to achieve and what did you say you were articulating and how did you do it? Well, for example, you know, we're in the midst of, a, of an, an acquisition. So as you rightly pointed out, Lawrence, our parent company, has just been acquired by one of the largest Australian 
asset management firms, a listed firm. Um, and so, you know, we are looking at change. How do we bring scalability into the business? Hambro is a relatively small business, but we now have the benefit of being part of a bigger group without losing our own autonomy and identity. So it's a very delicate balance that I think we need to achieve. And I think the way you, you know, it's a huge amount of change across, right across functions. I think to, to, to manage that effectively, you have to articulate the benefits of change. I think have really difficult conversations around what, what you know, what, what's not, what's going to be difficult. Some people might not end up, you know, still being there at the end of the journey. Um, there might need to be, you know, certain difficult decisions made. I think you need to be upfront about that. But really important that you articulate why are we going where we need to go and what does that look like to bring those people with you on that journey. It's not just about mindsets and you know, touchy-feely. I think it's also about that clarity of the end state and, and why we're doing it. So Nick, how did you articulate the benefits of the BMO acquisition? So we were very clear about that because there's a, there's a great logic to it. So we, we understood strategically why, why we were doing the deal the strategy around that in terms of bringing two strong organizations together that could uh, be more than the sum of the parts for the benefit of the clients was the rationale for doing the deal. And that was exactly the same rationale that we used across both parts of, of, of our combining organization to say, actually, we will be stronger together. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the environment in which we're in, it's a very challenging environment. All organizations need to respond to that changing, challenging environment. And we're trying to do it from a, a position of positive engagement in terms of setting out a, a strategic direction which we think will be better for the clients and then making sure that we really deeply cascaded that through the organization. So starting with me and then you know, driving it down into team meetings and, and sub-team meetings so people had an opportunity to understand and to Alexander's point, really understand the outcome. What is the benefit of this as we go through this journey and what will be the end of that journey. Uh, but not just doing it as a, an email uh, or one presentation, but an ongoing process of engagement with our staff. Uh, I mean, Joe, you, you were made the CEO of Leg Mason. I think you previously have been the head of distribution there. I mean, how did you effect change there in Leg Mason up until the sale to Franklin Templeton? Um, look, I, it's, I, I think the, the clarity around what you're trying to achieve is important. And one of the things that we just talked about is how do we, when we talk about um, how we conduct our business, how do we think about doing things better, faster, cheaper? You know, just in a world that's moving where pressures are and fees and all that kind of stuff. Better, faster, better, cheaper. faster and cheaper. How do we, how do we try to build a business that can, that can do a better job for clients faster, better, and cheaper. Um, and just as we're introducing new products, new ways of onboarding clients or, or doing client reporting or whatever we're doing, how does this improve, either make it faster, better, or cheaper? And, the, and just that clarity, you know, in, if there were, people were in meetings, being able to talk about those three things, is this to achieve any of those, you know? Um, I guess, you, look, you have to be good communicators and you have to, have, you have to bring people with you. And so I think authenticity must be massively important. Yeah, can I talk about that for a second? Because I think that um, you, you can say, I'm going to you know, implement change. I think another way to say that is, is uh, adaptation. And there's, there's things I think you can do in an organization. And I've learned the hard way you know, through failure um, that 
you try and make the organization from its foundation adaptable as opposed to one that has to feel like there's a wrenching change coming. And it starts with humility to say, we can't see the future perfectly. Have you got an who, example in mind? Who can? Um, yeah, I mean, when I first came here, there was a particular direction I thought we should go in and just start running in that direction and realized about 18 months in, it was totally the wrong direction. And so I just had to say, I was wrong. I had a vision and the vision was wrong. And, you know, and it was jarring for some folks, right? So then it was, okay, how do we do things where we build an adaptable organization? How do we make sure the team that we work together isn't gonna try and see perfectly into the future, but what we're gonna do is be able to adapt to the real world situation as best as possible. And then importantly, build the organization so that we're not making giant bets. We're trying to think about what are some of the things we're doing and what's working and not working and have the humility to shut down what's not working, the guts to do it and redirect that capital into those things that are working. And so it's being adaptable, I think, is more important than actually having this perfect vision of the future. Hard to do. It's easy to say it's hard to it's do. It's a strain nimble as well. Nimble, nimbleness is, is, the, is the very definition of adaptability. How did that feel? Person, Which one? To, when I failed? Bit, when you, well, no, the, to, to actually say, being able to look, look at yourself in the mirror and say, actually, do you know what? I need to do this. I need to acknowledge that I need to do this. Because that's, that's well, rare. The, well, the most important thing was to have people around me who were willing to challenge me. You know, and so I think that's really important for anybody who's... Our leadership team had to say, let's make sure we're getting you know, dissenting opinions. And encouraging dissenting opinions is essential, I think, in any company. And so, uh, so that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. I remember there was one person in particular that came in, shut the door, and said, "This isn't working." You know, I was like, "Okay." So we went had a full day, you know, and I fought it for a little while, and then I was like, "Okay, I'll capitulate." So you have to know yourself as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, otherwise, the temptation is to be quite defensive in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're around for long <laughs> enough, you make enough mistakes, you realize, okay, well, people make mistakes, but you know, I mean, what a great active manager is good what 52% of the time probably. So the best active managers I know are actually the most humble people on earth. But also it says a supportive environment, not a blame culture. Freedom to fail. I think that's critical. Freedom for to fail. Yeah. Right? And it sort of takes us into the question. Of, so, sorry, I, I, spoke I, I over was going to say the best innovators have yes. the freedom to fail at the heart of their culture. You know, and there isn't that blame culture, as you said, but you just pick yourself up and you try again. Yeah, so I, I mean, we do have a question. Uh, you know, I said on culture, how important is culture? Describe three ways in which you fostered a positive culture. Uh, Robert, I think, is it you who says, says culture is central to our long term goals? That'll be a quote from Thomas Rowe Price, I would have thought of. <laughs> <laughs> 1937, I would imagine. Oh, right. uh, yeah, so culture. Still on the walls today. So, so that's just, just, just so I, 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 you know, how important is culture? Describe three ways in which you have fostered a culture. So think of some examples of positive culture. How, if at all, would you differentiate the ethos and culture of asset management from other areas of financial services, such as investment banking? And where are you on the scale between investment-driven culture and a sales-driven culture? I'm sure no one's going to say sales. Um, I think that last one is a is a false choice. It's a false dichotomy. It, it, it really is. I, you know, when I came into Allspring and um, was getting to know the investment teams yeah. and the distribution yeah. team, and you know, the the investment teams said, a number of them would say, "Are we going to continue to be a an investment culture?" And I yeah. said, "Absolutely." 
And uh, then when I met with the distribution teams, they'd say, are we going to continue to be a distribution culture? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not a... It's not an either or. It's an and. Yeah. And, right. and I think people get... Huh? Yeah, I said, rather be an investment culture or a distribution culture, I'd rather be a client-led culture. Exactly. Totally. Client you know, we're going to do, do the best for our clients by bringing the be best of these two disciplines to bear on the client. And um, it, it don't, let's not get into this false narrative of either or. Yeah. Just talk, I, mean, I think you've got to keep it front and center. Um, if we just take the pandemic, um, in London we have 800 people, 300 of which are brand new since the beginning of the pandemic and therefore have had far, far less time to inculcate themselves into the culture. If you just assume that you have a relatively low turnover culture such that we do, you would just assume therefore that osmosis will do the job for you and it'll just work. You, you can't. You've got to be really, really deliberate yeah, but about it. I'd like an example of it. I would say every single man our management committee meets every two weeks for two hours. I would say at every single management committee conversation, some aspect of culture will get talked about and will get put into a decision around we might be looking to make an operational decision or a pricing decision or a new product launch decision. Every single aspect of that, somebody somewhere will say something to do with what is the cultural implication or what would our culture tell us that we should think about in making that decision. And then as and when we talk about that through the organization as a result of that, that's part of the dialogue, it's part of the narrative. I think it's rewarding good behavior and then you know making sure there are consequences for bad behavior. I think that can be a very strong indicator yeah. and signal yeah. for culture. Yeah. So for example, to give CEO, CEO awards for things like kindness and courtesy, you know, at the end of the year, I think that sends a very strong signal that those are attributes that are valued within the culture, you know, that, that collegiate working relationship and helping other teams. But on the flip side, you know, if there is behavior that shouldn't be condoned, there have to be very clear consequences. Yeah. Those people need to go. Yeah. Well, Do you they, know, they, they first need to be talked to. Yeah, but, but if they don't understand at some point, you need to have the tough Listening to you, Alexandra, um, and it's whether someone wants to uh, you know, disclose here. But um, we had a situation at one of our events where one of the sponsors, that's one of the asset managers, behaved badly to one of our people. And, and we obviously told the asset manager, and that asset manager fired the person because they behaved deeply inappropriately. And the, the most senior person in the company wanted to speak to the citywide person who'd been upset. And I just thought, well, you know, that's a good response. Yeah. yeah. So that's when I think actions speak louder than words. Yeah. I think words are really important, to, to Robert's point, that it has to come up and it has to be front and center, but sometimes words are not enough and mm. there have to be actions. Yeah. Yeah. How to handle bad behavior. But, but, but it's or or a reward good behavior. It, yeah, it's yeah. a positive yeah, it reinforcement. Yeah, positive right. as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I, I accept that. Accept that. And action can be in terms of understanding that that you know culture, like everything else, changes, develops. You know, Robert, you just talked about eight hundred people, of which three hundred are yeah. new. Now, obviously, as you go through that hiring process, you're going to be trying to hire people that will be, you know, culturally aligned. But the reality is, things do change, and so for us, going through an integration, we're very conscious of the fact that we're bringing seven hundred people and eight hundred people together, and one particular cohort did not choose to be part of the other cohort. Now, we did a lot of due diligence to, as much as we could to ensure that there was some cultural alignment and we would not have done the deal had, had, had we not felt that. But then we're being very conscious about how we work on that, which is really about listening to our staff and making sure that they have a voice in this because culture isn't just 
what I want it to be because that, that's going to be a failing from, from day one. What it needs to be a combination of a load of factors, not least of which reflects the actual DNA and mindset of your staff because your staff are your business. And so we spend a lot of time now proactively engaging and, and doing pulse surveys with our staff specifically around culture to understand one, what they expect and two, how we're delivering against that. So it's, it's part of that conscious engagement uh, and I think you have to be like that. Well, one thing we think more and more about, your, your previous topic was about change, is the difference between culture fit and culture add. So when you're interviewing, you can look for culture fit as in, but what you typically end up doing is hiring more people like the people you've already got. Mm. If you're going to change an organization, you ultimately need to find people who share certain core beliefs around culture, but ultimately you think are going to add to your culture and help you to change. That in itself is an uncomfortable process. Um, because the, on, the, the identifying of those people and then the onboarding of those people and being very explicit with the rest of your leadership team to say part of the mandate for this role and this individual is to help us move in this place, that will be uncomfortable, but it's okay. Um, I think that's because we talked about change. Ultimately, if we only ever hire people who are like us already, then change is going to become harder to do. Uh, Angus, where do you want to take the discussion? <laughs> oh, by the way, does anyone want a break, a five-minute break? Because we can do it, we can do it. But if you're all right, we can continue on. Can I say one more thing about culture? Yeah, go for it. Is that I think that at an industry level, yeah. I think that our industry has some inherent advantages. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting probably over a hundred different asset managers because of a job I had at Vanguard where we hired sub advisors, and there are some common themes that you see, and one is is that. By and large, by and large, not everybody, but by and large, we are long-term oriented investors. You're long-term? Long-term oriented, oriented yeah. investors, which, which just by definition, having a longer-term culture helps to say we want longer-term employees. You know, you want asset managers who have long tenure managing their portfolios. You don't want portfolio, and we don't speculate as an industry Again, there are some that do, but as an industry, generally, we don't speculate, we invest. And I think that that means that the people who are attracted to the asset management industry want to think more instead of quarter to quarter. They want to think about 10-year, 15-year time horizons, and the best investors do. You know, they're not somebody who's thinking, I need to turn the portfolio over every month. They're thinking about, how do I find a company that I think is going to have enduring long-term value creation? And so I find that consistent, mostly consistent across the industry. And I think it means that we inherently have an advantage over other industries that might have to worry about, oh my goodness, I've got to get my performance going this quarter. Again, not universal. There are those places I've been to where quarter to quarter performance matters. And those are the people who I would never have hired as an asset manager. But, uh, but by and large, it's a, it's a pretty good industry from that perspective compared to others. So just to chime in on culture a little Go bit for it. Um, because you asked about what what do you do and how do you specifically yes. kind of focus people um, you know culture is is not what we're here to do culture is a bit of the how we do it right but what I what I have done to try to kind of align people is to try to focus them on and I, I, I come from the place that I think great companies have a great mission and a mission that people become passionate about that they believe in that they can they can get specific about, they can see how they, their, their actions fulfill that, 
that mission. And so we try to talk about mission a lot. I start every meeting by reminding people, do you know what our mission is? What is your mission? Our mission is investing to improve, excuse me, is, is oh boy, I'm going to get crushed on this one, <laughs> is elevating investing to be worth more. To be worth more. To be worth more. And that's squishy, right? And, 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 and so one of the things we talk about is what does that mean and how can we actually do it and how can we measure it, right? And so, but I, I try to start every meeting and even client meetings with, I want to tell you about what our mission is and how we think about accomplishing that. And then from there, talking to the teams about what is, what's the vision for the company? If we actually achieve this mission, if we can say that we've achieved it, what do we look like in so doing? And, what are, and then what are some of the values that we have as a company? And let's talk about those values that will help us to achieve that mission and ultimately the vision of the company that we can become. And we talk about that consistently. And that's something that, that <laughs> when I slipped up on the, on the mission, we, we did in my time at Lake Mason as well, is focus on the mission. Here's an interesting story. When it was all said and done, um, and this I, I think is a part of culture, but when it was all said and done, the, 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 when we closed the transaction of selling Lake Mason to Franklin Templeton, and you know, after the day after the close, my inbox filled with a lot of you know employees. Thank you. It was great. We had a good time. But the one thing that people, the the thing that people most thanked me for uh, during their time at Lake Mason was focusing focusing the company on a mission. And it it meant I was I was stunned at how important it was to my former colleagues that we that we anchored around a mission that they could rally behind and focus their efforts on and feel like they were making a difference beyond making a salary and a bonus. What was, the, so Lake, what was the Lake Mason? That's what I started to say, which was investing to improve lives. Oh, that was oh, to that improve lives. To improve lives. Yes. And, and the, the interesting story, you know, again, not to go on and on, but when I first became CEO, we, we brought in a consultant to help us with strategy and the, we, we started working on it and the consultant stopped and he said, he said, um, Oh, I, I got ahead of myself. I jumped into the, you know, into the process too quickly. We should make sure we're uh, focused on what your mission is, what's your mission. And I was, I was sitting there as the new CEO around a, an executive team, none of whom could articulate what the mission of the company was. When we finally got a copy of it from HR, uh, <laughs> it was a paragraph that solved for you know global peace in the Mideast and, and global yeah. hunger and yeah, all. Yeah. I mean, it covered everything and said nothing. And so we ultimately boiled it down to, you know, those few words. Investing to save lives, and to improve by lives. The, by the time we exited, the last poll survey we did, 95% of our people at Lake Mason knew exactly what that mission was. And that's how much it meant to them. So uh, in becoming Allspring, we've tried to anchor on a mission, a vision of what we look like if we achieve that vision, and what are the values that are going to carry us there. And that's purpose-led, isn't it? It's a purpose-led culture. And I think people deliver more, and it's about yeah. more than just the paycheck. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. about doing something important, elevating, investing to be worth more for who? For our clients. Yeah. What's your mission? Look, I mean, a pur purposeful culture is absolutely what it's all about. I mean, having a purposeful culture, it's the ultimate enabler. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can and you should try and drive that top down, but you can't solely do it top down. It has to be bottom up led as well. And everyone knowing what it is that they're doing and how it is that they're doing it is vitally important if you're going to get to the right your client outcomes. And ours is all about focusing on active investment excellence, believing that we can appropriately, positively influence you know, people um, and the planet by that active investment excellence. 
and knowing what people are focusing on day to day, I say it's, it is the ultimate, um, ultimate enabler. Yeah, and we, we do lots of things to make sure that you know, the behaviours that we expect that fall out of that culture are clearly displayed and understood by everybody. Like, um, yeah, like making sure that we collaborate with each other, that we challenge ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, we have you know, a, a number of behaviour statements that sit on the agendas for most of our, our meetings to remind people what's important to us. And then to Alexander's point, you know, we celebrate as well. I think it's really important to celebrate you know, good behaviours, good outcomes. Um, you know, we have a series of awards that we give out every month. Um, they're awards for people that make us feel proud to work at Jupiter. You know, I want all of our clients, I want all of our shareholders, I want all of our colleagues to be proud of their association with Jupiter. So and give us an example of somebody you awarded and for what? So every month someone gets awarded for doing something where another member of staff has nominated them for their for their actions. It's simply going above and beyond in doing something. So pro probably for a client. E.g.? Um, you know, you're, you're staying ridiculously late to ensure that some client gets the particular thing that they've asked for at extremely short notice. It's making sure that a colleague who needed to do something potentially for a client had the help and support they needed above and beyond what was expected in their standard day job. So and you get an award for that? Is they're, they're nominated for it. They, they get nominated for it. Is, um, is there any money attached to the award? It's £1,000 a month for that individual um, for saying is thank you. Is it just you. one person a month? It can be multiple people. It's at least one person a month. Okay. That's a way of just saying thank you for doing something that yeah, makes us feel proud to work at Jupiter. Joe Smiley. You just killed us. I mean, £1,000 a month, that's a lot of money. But that's actually the point, is I that know, for everybody, £1,000... It's meaningful. Yeah, it's a chunk. Yeah. And it's a way of it's saying, a chunk. Like, thank you. You've, you know, you've done your job and you get paid for your job. Yeah. But beyond that, yeah, we want people to work hard to go that extra mile to do things that make us all feel, frankly, awesome about working for the company that we work for. Okay, Angus, I'm handing hang well, over to I you. I was going to say, can I spin this into something else? Go well, for well, it. I'll give the group a choice. So firstly, we could talk about differentiation because it seems to me we talk about mission and people having different ways, ways of articulating their missions. But then at the end of the day, why you? Why does somebody want to invest with you as an asset manager as opposed to anybody else? So how do you differentiate yourselves in the kind of new world? Or we could talk about data and data science. Yeah, which is an interesting one. Like, so yeah. anybody want to put their hand up on either of those topics? <laughs> I like to put my hand up on data and data science because it's a fascinating one. And you saw the letter from Elon Musk saying, can we hold back on artificial intelligence and I just think you know for you as businesses to become both to become more efficient internally but also more efficient and insightful as investors I think data and data science feels to me like uh, the future and I know we've talked about it. So. Well, yeah, when I start so you in-house in you know, we, we have a dedicated um, 10 strong team 10 people are, of, of individuals that are focused on front office data science and their job is to alight upon um, investment insights via the analysis of typically unstructured alternative data sets. So above and beyond the data sets that are already available, you scour and look out for and necessarily scrape the internet to find data that can help either generate investment ideas or challenge or corroborate investment ideas. And Is that something new? It's something we've been doing for quite a few years now. All right, so before um, you inherited it. Yeah, I've inherited it, but it's something that we, look, we passionately believe in as a differentiator. I mean, uh, and, yeah, look. Can you give us an example of an unstructured data set? 
Well, it's looking at... Um, For example, looking... Everyone talks about the stupid satellites and the car parts in the satellite. You know, can we have something yeah, but new? It's, it's, credit card, it's credit card data. Credit card. Um, All right, we've had credit cards. Speeches, so, yeah. speeches. Speeches at conferences. That's unstructured Speeches data, and right? conferences. What, yeah. you're looking for the number yes, of positive mentions? Yeah, yeah. yeah. words and in investor transcripts that might suggest yeah. um, you know, certain behaviours of management teams. You know, it's just trying to you know, use anything that is out there. I mean, we think that not just data in terms of unstructured data, like numbers. Think of anything that is out there that can be collated and then analysed to generate a potential series of, um, of observations that mm. are in some way additive to what certainly Jupiter are a, re, you know, a series of fundamental investment decisions. And sometimes that data series or those outcomes are there, say, to challenge investment ideas. You, know, you own this stock. Do you know that this is happening? Um, in fact, you know, we, you know, we, we didn't own Netflix when it had its profit warning six, nine months ago, but we'd done quite a lot of work looking at um, you know, some of the um, you know, subscriber trends, there was, there was lots of evidence um, from credit card data and the like that suggested that perhaps subscriber trends at Netflix were under pressure. Um, and as it happened, say we didn't own the stock at the time, we had a view that perhaps there was a profit warning to come and it, you know, it came to pass. And had we have owned that stock, the managers might have listened to the data and done something about it or not. But the point is it's something else additive that informs the investment decision above and beyond you know, non-data related inputs. Anyone else want to jump in here? So we have a New York Tech data center, which is in New York, and it's basically focused on data. And it's it's a utility that is essentially there to act as seed corn capability for any function in the business who wants to get into data analytics for a particular stream. If that then works, we will typically then invest in that, and that will go and become part of whatever that function is. So as an example, we will take our digital data, we'll look at how people are interacting with various different parts of our websites, and we will use that through data and analytics to construct pathways to take them through and test. If you, if you access this and then you went on to this, does that mean you're more likely to go here or here? And it helps us construct web journeys that ultimately tries to get clients to content and data that is more interesting to them. Then we use that to create sales signals, back to your point around marketing and sales. Mm -hmm to then feed to our salespeople to say, okay, we've now learned that this pathway leads to this outcome. Here is a greater likelihood of interest from this advisor or this client, you know, go, go follow up. Um, but the tech data center of about 150 people is there. Um, so it, it started providing content for the investment organization that worked so well that we now have a dedicated team within the investment team. Our operations team will look at, look at operational patterns. Our distribution teams will look at it uh, we'll use it to create all sorts of analytics of sales and marketing data. I would have thought you were into this, Nick. Uh, yes, so we have uh, equivalent. We've developed a, a dedicated team that with, sits within the investment function that's specifically there to support and drive those kind of identification of patterns and, and then feeding that into the investment research and, and, and portfolio construction process. And then separately, because we're part of a bigger financial services firm who has a very large data center actually in Phoenix um, uh, that, that we tap into. Uh, and they are both uh, sort of center of excellence because they have the bandwidth to, to think about what's coming up and, and uses of technology to help inform. Um, uh, and they also do the, the sort of the, the, the data sourcing and then the analysis and then drive that back into the business. So we do an awful lot, very equivalent to what Robert said in terms of trying to identify um, kind of consumer prof profiles, uh, so that's both in terms of end consumers, mm -hmm. but also in terms of our distribution uh, partners, uh, so we can try and make their life 
more straightforward, make their life easier. Uh, so it's a combination of different uh, aspects of, of the business that are utilizing these, these centers of excellence. Uh, anyone else want to chip in here? I'd, I'd love some more specific examples, by well, the so way. Well, you talked about artificial intelligence, and yes. I think that, uh, oh, maybe it's scary, but I, I think there's some elements of it in the way you use it aren't scary at all. And uh, I think Robert talked about this a little bit, but understanding um, pathways that consumers or advisors or whoever's interacting with you. But uh, I think what's very interesting, you know, we have our chief technology office where we have, I don't know, several hundred people who are just thinking about what's out in the future and then what are some of the use cases. And so one of the interesting use cases for ChatGPT is essentially it eliminates the website. It just flattens the UI so that instead of having to go in and say like, well, I'm going to click here, okay, then I'm going to click there, then I'm going to click here, you just have a box and you just say, this is what I'd like to do, and then the AI is smart enough to be able to take you through the journey you need to go on, whatever that might be. I want to change my bank account, I want to move money, I want to trade a security. It's going to actually I want to find you. a sustainable impact fund. Or find a sustainable impact fund or ask a question about what's the difference in holdings between this fund and that fund. You don't have to go look at it and do a comparison. You just ask the question, it'll show it to you because it's just automatically taking the data out of the... And the important thing, though, I think, is that uh, when we've talked about it, the points of differentiation will likely come in how you train the AI because you're going to have to use it in your own ecosystem and then how you train it and what you're doing to make sure it's learning and constantly evolving is actually how firms can use it in a differentiated manner. Because everybody can use it, probably. I mean, it's you know pretty widely available if you're a Microsoft user who isn't you know using Microsoft services. Um, it's just a matter of then how do you use it and how do you train it to get Are you using it at the moment, uh, Sean? Yeah, we're doing several use cases. Not, not publicly, yeah, but yeah. internally, yeah, sure. But I mean, it could also kill a lot of jobs. This is Goldman's were warning, weren't they? <coughs> we, we, have a, we have a pretty strong view on that. Go the, on. The technology, I mean, you know, we're kind of anti-Luddites in that we don't think, we think that jobs don't get eliminated, tasks change. Yeah. And so, I mean, my job would have been eliminated if I, what would I do? I, I dictate memos into a, and then, you know, and, and of course, did, did we get rid of the people who were typing in the background? You know, it's not that job went away, it just changed. You know, so I, I think that jobs change, they don't. As I was listening here, I was thinking about, you know, um, AI being scary. And yeah. I think that's a demographic issue, right? I, I think about my sons and daughter and, and what they expect and how they're going to expect to be navigating instead of websites to be able to just do yes. do that. And and they're not intimidated by it. They're not afraid by it, afraid of it. They, they embrace it. And I think... Um, you know, we're going there, right? And and in terms of broadly speaking, data and technology, you know, I, I just think of it very simply, it's effectiveness, it's efficiency, it's leverage. And and you know, we're not where we need to be. We're 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 having to kind of we're coming out of Wells Fargo. We still ride on Wells Fargo's platform. So we're having to to transition our entire you know, infrastructure, we'll be doing that onto the cloud. So we're we're rebuilding and creating a brand new technology. Uh, platform, 
and then alongside that, building out the data to go along with it. So in some respects, we're behind from that standpoint, but we're, we feel like we're gonna have an opportunity to leap forward by creating something brand new. And we're just embracing it as, as for the leverage that it can provide the organization. But to the generational point, and some of the coverage around that Goldman report that came out, I heard a figure quoted, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but it sounded good, that uh, in the UK, 60% of the workforce do a job that didn't exist 40 years ago, which feeds into your point. Exactly. Yeah, think about it. So we need less people to answer a phone when a client calls on the retail side, but we need more people who are training AI, who are data scientists, who are understanding how to actually interpret it and do that work. And it's just a better job. Mm. Can you give us an example of a use case that you're using the AI for? Yeah, we're just redesigning websites. So, so we're saying, okay, if a journey is to open up a new ISA, yes, you know, today you'd go in, open an ISA, yeah, give me this, okay, click, give yeah. me that. Now it's going to be somebody who's it's AI who's actually guiding you through the process, and then when you get stuck, yeah. you can ask it a question, it'll give you an answer to the question. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of use case we see. It just makes it much. And think about it: the, it digital interactions have natural frictions in them. And so it's how do you eliminate those frictions? That's what good, you know, yeah. uh, client experience yeah. uh, professionals do. And it just removes some of the friction. Think about having to get advice, you know, and do it digitally. You know, we had a program that we closed because it was, we, we saw it as this huge wall to climb for a UK investor to have to get advice through a digital interface. Yeah. And imagine, you know, in the future, artificial intelligence is really helping that person to get through the, so, so I guess a financial advisor, a face-to-face -face financial advisor might feel threatened by that, but it also might enable them to handle more clients per advisor because they have a very easy on- You can't, you can't replace the relationship side of things, can you? It does not. There are things that are uniquely human which obviously yeah. can't be replaced, and empathy is one of them. I don't think AI is gonna get to empathy anytime soon. I don't know, there was that film about a guy falling in love with a robot, I can't yes. remember what it was called. But so. Um, Angus, where are we going? Up to you, really. Uh, I did think of what aspects of your job. What, uh, what aspects of your job do you like, or do, what aspects of your job do you like the most or least? I thought, I thought, I th I actually, I'd encourage you to go back on differentiation. I thought go that for was, it. I thought that Thank you, Joe. We want uh, audience. Yeah, I, uh, look. That's the how thing do you differentiate I, that's yourself? The thing I worry about the most is you know how are we going to yeah. how do we differentiate and. Um, you know, the reality is we're, as Allspring, we're a very traditional manager, right? We're in the liquidity business, equity business, fixed income business. And, uh, you know, the reality is, you know, we don't really offer, oh, virtually everything we offer to our clients can be and is offered by multiple other yes. uh, providers yeah. at any given moment at, the, at a better, performing better in any, at any given point in time and maybe yeah. cheaper. And so I just, I continually ask our teams, why Allspring? We've yeah. got to know why Allspring. And I think it's, I think it's surrounding them. We've talked about this a little bit today, but I think it's, it's all about the client experience, including investment performance, including price, but everything else around it. And the way you, as an organization, throughout the value chain, surround the client, embrace the client. And, and support the client the way the client wants to be supported, not the way we, sometimes I think we kind of force feed things the way we're, we're gonna do them. But Joe, don't you think everyone in this room is gonna say that they're, you know, they're brilliant at looking after their clients? Yeah. 
and, so and it's so going to be a matter of who I, actually I, delivers it in right, a way that clients value. Yes, I get that. I, I, I say everyone aspires to be brilliant at looking after their clients end to end, but look, we, we are all doing it differently, mm. so therefore there's no one right way to do that, and no client is created equally. But equally, I'm not sure there's one thing that is ever going to differentiate any of us in our industry. It's a series of different things that together come together to create a differentiated proposition. You know, some of us will be listed and some of us won't. Some of us will be global, some of us will be regional, some of us will be very biased towards a particular asset class, and some of us won't. All these things in aggregate, and then of course culture and behaviours make a big difference too, all these things in aggregate create the type of firm that you are, and whether that then aligns with the client need, it depends on the underlying client need, which itself will be different as well. But don't you want to be known for something? Yeah, no, uh, we do, and certainly Jupiter. If I want Jupiter want, you know, to be known for one thing, it's for being a truly active manager. And I want everything that we do to be both active and in some way differentiated. And it might be differentiated because it's a more concentrated portfolio, a more volatile portfolio, or a more conservative portfolio, um, a, you know, a, a run by a team, run by an individual. You know, in some way, it needs to be different relative to the peers. I mean, ultimately, we're in this wonderfully um, competitive environment, wonderfully competitive, in many cases, very mature market that we all operate in. Therefore, the only way to win is to do the thing that we do better and maybe cheaper and maybe ideally both. But we have to believe we're doing it in some way better because you know, you're a bit like Allspring, you know, Jupiter, everything Jupiter does, someone else does as well. Um, therefore, we have to prove that we can do it in a way that is better to everyone else that does it. I mean, I imagine you also want to be known for a truly active fund manager, Alexandra. Absolutely. That delivers value. Yeah, to I mean, I would just say we want to be known for excellence. Excellence. Yeah, that's, I just put the bar very high and say whether it's, you know, excellence in terms of active investment management, excellence in terms of client service or delivery to clients, excellence in terms of understanding what the market's telling you and adapting, um, you know, I, I, I excellence in terms of internal controls functions. It's that whole value chain, isn't it? It isn't just the investment strategy, it's everything that's behind it as well. But, but where does brand fit in with this, if at all? Isn't that one way to differentiate yourself? Yes. Move on. Why? Well, what is brand? Brand is your reputation, ultimately. Um, so brand ultimately has to be the synthesis of everything you, that you do. A lot of what we often talk about as an industry is, are actually features. So we can talk about having a, glo a globally integrated collaborative investment platform. Fascinating, Robert. But that's a feature. It's not a benefit. Mm -hmm. So you have to say, well, what's the consumer benefit of that? And then you have to have four or five aspects. I agree completely with Matthew that there's no one thing but aggregate four or five meaningful points of differentiation into a set of benefits that in itself rolls up to a set of brand attributes, then if you can uh, link that to the vision and mission and purpose, then I think you've got something that really resonates and differentiates. It has to be credible, as in you have to be able to claim it. It has to be compelling, as in it has to resonate with your clients. It has to be differentiated from your competitor peer group, and it has to be durable through time. And if you can create those four characteristics of our own brand, then I think you've got something that is truly differentiated and it's your reputation and it will last. Brand is ultimately the experience your clients yeah. have, right? right? Yeah. Ultimately. yeah, which is a reflection of who you are and who your people are. Right. I, I, I'd go a little further than that and say it is the minute to minute, day to day, week to week, year to year, decade to decade experience mm -hmm. that is consistent with what you say. And every single decision that somebody in your firm or our firm makes has to be consistent with what the brand is and the client has to feel that. And if there's dissonance anywhere in there, 
Because what are we? We're, just, we're, we're about trust, obviously. We're about trust. The brand is about, do I trust this financial institution to actually handle my money? You know, it's not our money, it's theirs. And so if you do anything that starts to break that trust because you've made decisions along the way that seem to be disconnected with the promise you've made, I think you have very challenging The case study you used up. earlier about the firm that had the CityWire incident, that was a brand-defining moment. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Brand-defining, right? Yeah. If that had not been picked yeah. up upon, that would have been an element of reputation and trust, and it would have been, okay, well, nice advert, but this is, yeah. how, this is how I actually experience yeah. your business. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's a, an interesting aspect to this now in terms of, if you look at the, the change, the structural changes in the, in the value chain across our industry, um, you know, the institutionalization of wholesale, for example. What does that actually mean for the importance of brand and differentiation at the corporate level, which is, I think, what we always used to sort of focus on, versus at the channel level? Because I think, you know, and I've looked at uh, my business and opportunities, the traditional mutual fund part of our business is critically important to us, but I'm not necessarily thinking that's a huge growth engine. Um, so then I'm thinking about, okay, UK wholesale, where might the opportunities be with the, the big asset aggregators, the big wealth managers mm -hmm. <coughs> who are very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And so there, in some ways, they're almost disintermediating us from the end client <coughs> mm -hmm. because they're talking about the value that they bring. And so it's their brand that is important. Mm -hmm. and we are almost a little bit sort of the intel inside, if I can use mm -hmm. that old uh, advertising jargon. And so f from my perspective, I'm very focused when I think in terms of more institutional part of our business, which can now include wholesale, is that actually it's at the individual capability level that we, we need to differentiate, not at the overall corporate level, because the corporate, corporate level is, I think, more traditionally anchored in the retail side of our business, which is probably becoming less not, not important because there's a, you know, they're a very important part of our, our, our business from a client perspective, but from a growth perspective, uh, I wonder whether or not the focus now needs to be at the, at the capability level and being well, able to well, it's hard to say, it means your brand, you need to be ambidextrous with your brand. Yes. So you're, you're trying to solve for a feeling that is generated by your business and your brand at multiple levels. Yes. You know, in your, the your fund selector level, plus mm. the underlying client level. You know, when the fund selector says this is a great fund and the person underneath that who's got owns that fund says, oh yeah, I know that company, I feel good about that being mm. my portfolio. You're solving for it at, at both levels and, and that's hard. Uh, yes, yes, it, it certainly is hard. It, it, it actually makes me think about your your business because um, you know you got two billion of net institutional sales in, and you're ranked by or rated by eighteen consultants. I know you didn't say too much about it in the in the analyst call, but Jupiter's brand is not, in my head, an institutional one, and yet you are obviously winning institutional business. Well, I think there's two things there. I think. Historically, Jupiter was seen as a UK retail brand. Correct. And so if you saw it through those eyes, you still see it through those eyes today. Yet so many of the institutions that we're engaging with don't have any legacy or history or understanding of Jupiter being an old UK retail brand. They're lighting up us, upon us for the first time via a consultant relationship or a database where they've come across a particular investment capability of ours in a geography far removed from the UK. Mm. And so they're seeing us for the first time and they're, they're not actually judging us through those mm. eyes. Where it's harder, 
is when you are seen as one thing and trying to be another thing. It's like being a, a public markets investor and trying to be a private markets investor or a mm -hmm. passive investor trying to be an active <coughs> investor. You're trying to challenge people's perceived understanding of what it is that you do. And that then comes to the ambidextrous point is you're trying to appeal on, on multiple levels to multiple different clients. And look, regardless of you know, whether you are facing out to the retail market or institutional market, increasingly to Nick's point, the two are colliding. Mm -hmm. And the level of sophistication <coughs> at that decision-making mm. level, you know, the fund buyer, the fund selector, mm. whether it represents an institution or a wider retail platform, mm. it's a very sophisticated client that we're engaging with that you have to persuade with your brand as well as your investment expertise. But the underlying relationship, even if you are a component provider, is still vitally important because you don't want the underlying client mm. to have that allergic reaction to that fund or investment capability that's in the portfolio just because a, an IFA or a wealth manager is um, has selected it for other reasons. I sort of, whilst Matthew was talking, I was actually thinking also about you because you've got so much in active management. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got a brand that is able to face off to both. Oh, how honestly, much I you think got our brand is very associated with indexing. Oh, it is, it in is. But you've, how much have you got in active management? 1.4 1 .4 trillion. dollars. Yeah, something like that, yeah. But most of that's sub fixed incomes in 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 house. But most of that's sub advised. Sub advised, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's historical. I mean, that money's been there for <coughs> fifty years from the Wellington days, and oh, right. it used to be the same company, right? Oh, of course, it was Jack Bogle. Jack Bogle, exactly. who is the CEO yeah. of Wellington, got fired. Yeah. And James Reapy, who there's a there's a, there's, yeah. a little, there's a T row connection too, by the way. It was the anyway. first sub advisor, I think, in the world, right? That's how sub advisory started, didn't it, in the 1970s? Yeah, I think yeah. so. But but uh, but by the way, they live next to each other uh, very comfortably, yeah. um, you know, because we think that there is a formula for active, which is about, you know, talent, low cost, and patience. Um, and I think one of the tricks to being successful in the asset management industry is to, um, you know, be patient and only select. I think it's important for asset managers to select their clients carefully. Um, and if a client wants to come in or out of your fund based on three years of performance, even, I'd say that might be a client you don't really want. Well, so you're, you're you need long-term, you need long-term oriented investors for long-term oriented portfolios. We know that active managers will have long periods of underperformance. And so you have to be thinking about how are you going to make sure you're engaging with clients that understand. And then you can demonstrate that it's usually a factor headwind. If you have security selection problems, well, then that's a harder thing to <laughs> overcome. But, but I think uh, you know we believe that's a really important part of the asset management industry. We're happy to participate in it. Yeah. What about being a leader? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. find that interesting because you know you're all leaders, and, the, and there's no manual for what you do. Yeah. It's not like you're getting, I think you get you do the, the job and there's a manual. I think it's one of the defining characteristics of the next ten years of our industry mm. is that we. Uh, develop for value leadership as a trait and as a characteristic in its own right. I think we, if we go right back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about distribution, mm. typically in our industry, distribution people have been salespeople. Yeah. CEOs have quite often been investment people. And there is a cultural hierarchy between the functions in the organization. And I think leadership is an attribute that is sort of assumed to come with tenure. Mm. And I just don't think it does. I think it's a trait that you can identify 
in younger people and you can develop for it. And I think Vanguard has a very good track record, for example, of you talked about rotating people around. I think that's an absolutely critical development part of leadership is mobility and giving people exposure to different experiences, not just functions, but different <coughs> leadership challenges. I would say as an industry as a whole, generally, generically, broad brush, I don't think we have valued and developed for leadership as a defining characteristic in our <coughs> businesses. Uh, I think we have confused domain skill and tenure with leadership. And that's because analytical skills are so valued right. in our industry, but they're only a small part of what I think makes an effective leader. Right. Um, mm. And so I think that's an absolutely spot on comment. Why weren't you writing a book on leadership? Leadership, yeah. And I was actually going to say, I mean, I've written some articles on that. Yeah. Um, with but an army general. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Can one of your questions is from whom yes, or from what have you learned the most? Yes. And if I could just take the opportunity to Go say, I think it. there's a lot that we can actually learn from the army, from the military, oh, yeah. um, from the importance of strategic clarity. So in Greek, the word general is the same as the word strategy, because the, the primary responsibility of a general is to articulate very clear strategy. And that did come from the military. Um, and, and I think too many CEOs are sometimes too tactical. Mm. Um, and not strategic enough and really understanding <coughs> the difference between defining the objectives that you're trying to achieve and the strategy, the roadmap that will help you achieve them. So that's one thing. Mm. I think another thing is mission intent, if you've heard of that, which is really about empowering more junior people. Is this and also from the military? Yeah, it's also from the military. And this is, it's this idea that even if the junior people can understand what the ultimate intent is, if they're off doing an exercise or trying to go on a mission and there's an unexpected obstacle, because they understand the intent, they can use their own judgment or creativity to actually circumvent that obstacle to still achieve that same intent. And that's what we saw in the early days of the Ukraine-Russia war, actually, where the Ukrainians were clearly um, you know, succeeding because they had been trained by the Western uh, forces. So I think those are definitely, um, you know, I think two, two, two things. And then the final, um, what was the final one? <laughs> from the, from the, again, from the military. Again, from the military, strategic clarity. We talked about mission intent. Um, yeah, I can't remember. I'll, it'll come back. Well, to it'll me, come so back while someone else talks do. about <laughs> it. <laughs> Leadership, Joe. I just think it's about that being authentic, being genuine about who you are, what you know, what you need what we need to do, creating this vision of where we need to go, what's, ex what's expected of us, being transparent. You know, I think a lot of times leaders hold cards close to their vest. That's a power game. It's, a, it's stupid. You know, just be as transparent as you can be. And inclusive. And inclusive. Mm. Um, I think that's right. Okay, can I just come back to my third Yes, point? I wondered whether you remembered your third I one. I did remember it, actually. It's an important one, but an interesting one, because it comes back to some of the things that you said, Sean. So the third point is that no decision is worse than a bad decision. So in other words, some of the worst military defeats ever, and I think for the British it was 1942 in Singapore, the Battle of Singapore, where the Brits fought against the Japanese, mm. um, and I think they ended up surrendering 84,000 troops as a result, was because the general at that time didn't make a decision. You know, he had made the wrong assumptions around how the enemy was approaching. And he was paralyzed. He just didn't make a decision. He waited and waited. And this is where sometimes you're better off as a leader making a decision that may prove to be the wrong one in order to then get the feedback loop that tells you, actually, I was wrong. Now I need to pivot and change 
and you can do that rather than not taking a decision. And I do think that's interesting because I think there's so many parallels with us as CEOs who have to take decisions every single day. Um, well, and a, a good decision is not the same as a decision with a good outcome. Go on. A good de- you can make a good decision that has a bad yeah, outcome. Yeah. Yeah. It can be a fine decision. Yeah. It can be, I, I took account of all of the diversity opinions, I took account of the mm. facts and circumstances, it just didn't break for me. To the point about a good active yeah. manager getting it right 52% of the time. Good active managers, some of the best, I completely agree, that I've ever met are some of the most humble because they know exactly how it feels to be wrong, but they can still make the decisions that they believe are in the interests of their clients. But equally, you can make, there are cases where no decision is okay, because the military example, if somebody's, if you're under fire, you obviously need to make a decision. But in our world, sometimes it's okay to go and sleep on it. That's, yeah, uh, that's a decision that's in itself. That's part of decision making. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You end up making a decision. Preserving an optionality yeah. as a leader, knowing, that okay, is, is this a dis- yes. call I have yes. to make today, today or, or is there, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is there optionality? I'll take that. I'll take yeah. Yeah. Matthew, you've been, this is your first CEO role. You've been catapulted into this. Catapulted. You're the CIO and now you're CEO. But I, I think what have you learned? And I, mean, I, think everyone, I don't disagree with anything everyone said. I think we're all saying roughly the same thing. Um, a good CEO has to be a futurist. You have to have a view on what the future is going to look like. You have, to, you have to be very strategic in terms of how you're going to get there. But you've got to bring people along with you. Um, it does sometimes require hard decisions. Sometimes some decisions are relatively straightforward. But requ- yeah, there's no point in being a leader and looking around to find that all your, you're about to use a military analogy, your, your, your troops um, are several miles behind you. You're there to be there on your shoulders. And you are going to get things wrong. I mean, you know, the nature of sort of being as, in active management, we all discussed, is you're going to get things wrong. And sometimes it's working out that you've got things wrong quickly to stop doing the thing that you're doing, um, you to stop digging that metaphorical hole. Um, but ultimately, you are setting a vision and you're trying to persuade people to, you know, to fall in behind that and help you deliver on that, um, on that vision. Yeah, one thing uh, that came to me pretty early from talking to uh, people who I respected and, and had watched for many years is that when you have these broad-based, you know, kind of generalist roles and you have responsibilities for a wide range of activities, you know, I'm a very curious person, so I can get dragged into, oh, let's go talk about that for three hours, talk about that for three, and of course you'd kill yourself, right, because you can't do that. So it was keep things simple and make sure you're doing the most important things, which at least one mentor said, there's three things you need to worry about. Capital allocation slash prioritization, talent, and effective communication across all of your different constituents. And so I oftentimes look at my day, my week, my month, my year, and say, am I spending the right amount of time in those three areas? And if I'm not, just have the guts to say no. That's why it's so hard to have lunch with you. I don't fit into. I don't fit into one of your three. I'm only joking. We have. We do have lunch. No, we do have lunch. <laughs> Communication. We do have lunch. We do. I'm joking. Well, that was a really nice discussion. Interesting, and I think there's a lot to get out of that. So I want to say thank you very much for coming.